Good morning. I think I'm on, right? Yeah, I can hear. <laughs> well, God is doing tremendous work in this season it's through our children and through our church. If you don't know, we have been going on a Wednesday, after, a Wednesday mornings around 1030 and uh, passing our tracks and sharing the gospel with people. Here in Hollywood Boulevard, we are sitting in a position here in our church that's prime for evangelism. We don't have to go anywhere. We just have to be here to evangelize to the lost. And so if you're interested in coming to a Wednesday morning evangelism, I just want to uh, encourage you just to uh, contact Dakota, give me a call, give the church office a call, and, and uh, we'll be able to open the doors for you. We'll be gathered here in this courtyard at 1030 in the morning, and then we'll be able to go out there and share the gospel. It's not hard at all. Uh, all we do is that we, um, it's from your personality, however the Lord has uh, um, shaped you and grown you in terms of developing conversation with people. You could either pass a track to person or you want to have a conversation if you're a good conversationalist, <laughs> as some of us are. And uh, it's totally no pressure because after all, um, this, is, this is the Lord's work. And as long as you're willing to step out in faith, God will truly bless I encourage you to consider that as well as part of the ministry, which you could do here in the First Baptist Church of Hollywood. As we're going to start now, we're going to go into the Word of God in this um, portion of our service and portion of our worship. We've been worshiping God through songs, and now we can worship God through the reading of His Word. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. And we're here, we've been here for a while, for three weeks already, studying through the disciples and who they are and the character traits. I hope this has been encouraging for you. Um, but let's read through this passage here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, and we'll dive in to see what the Lord had to teach us. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 10. He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we just lift up this portion of the word of God to you, God. We know you have much to teach us, even though we just read through a bunch of names. Lord, these are individuals who have given their lives to you, so... Lord, may we learn from them, may we learn their journey, may we learn how their journey um, is similar to our journey at times uh, as we're also taking a step of faith to serve you. Lord, you're deserving of our honor, glory, and praise. So teach us, God, and how we can grow, how we can be um, more profitable servants of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, in this world, if you want to be hired for a job, you have to show your qualifications. Uh, certainly, this is a way that I uh, worked in my previous job. Uh, my previous job, I worked in the aerospace company, and that particular company uh, is a huge company. In that company, they have hiring qualifications. You have to either graduate from a four-year college degree, having some kind of engineering background, or having worked in an engineering firm for so many years in order for you to be qualified for the job. So oftentimes what we do is that we would hire per the qualifications. Uh, college students graduate from uh, four-year universities coming to our job. They want to be hired for the job. We look at their resume. We look at what they learned in school. And we hire them. We want to hire young people and you know, people who are going to stick around for a long time and uh, make a contribution to the company. However, once in a while, we will hire outside of the qualifications. We'll hire according to uh, recommendations. 
and we hired uh, a person who had never ever done engineering before, but someone who was recommended to us by another person who works in the company, somebody who worked there for a long period of time. He tells us that, hey, this person, um, I know this person for a long time as a friend or as a family member or as a relative. He's really, really good at uh, doing whatever that you tell him to do. He's a, he's a good, um, he's smart, he's, he's a good mental processor, he can learn whatever it is that you have to teach him right away if you would just teach him. So you can trust him that he will be able to accomplish the job that you have tell him or you have set him to do. So we believe in these recommendations. We would hire these people, we bring them in for interviews, like, okay, you don't know anything about engineering. That's okay, we can teach you. We'll teach you step by step, slowly and gradually you will learn. So over the 14 years I worked in that job, you would think that it's those people who are initially qualified, they'll show you the qualifications of the resume that are the most profitable for the company. It turns out it's not. It's not. It's those people who actually aren't qualified to begin with, but then got qualified through the job. They became the most uh, profitable people for the company. Um, those engineering, uh, those young students that come in or young graduates that come in, you think that they're the ones going to contribute to the company. What ends up, what happens is that they actually work one or two years, they got bored and they move on to another job. <laughs> they, don't, they don't stick around. But it's the people that get qualified throughout the years. Um, they worked there for 10, 20, 30 years. They didn't have an engineering degree, but they're good at what they do, extremely good at what they do. And they become an extremely valuable asset to the company. We see this all the time in the workplace. I, you guys are nodding your heads. You probably see this too in your own workplace. People who got qualified in the job are the people who are most um, valuable to the company. And I don't know why they stick around. Perhaps they stick around because the company gave them a, a, an opportunity. Perhaps they have a lot of relationships as a result of their job. And perhaps they stick around because they have built this relationship over the years. I don't know why they stick around. Perhaps they also are grateful because the company gave them an opportunity. The reality is that they're contributors to the company. They stuck around, extremely valuable, and we love them. We want them to be working for the company for as long as they, they want to, as long as they're willing. In the same way, I believe that God chooses us for the work of ministry. You see, you would think that God chooses those who are qualified for the job. God actually does not choose those who are qualified. God chooses those who are unqualified. In fact, for all of us, we're unqualified to begin with. Each one of us are. The reason why we're unqualified is because we're all sinners in God's kingdom, in God's world. The reason why we're sinners is because God had created us to be perfect in Him. God who is holy, who is just, had created us to be perfect, righteous, and holy, and, and instruments to be served uh, for His glory. But we chose to walk away from that in the garden. We chose to follow our own ways. We chose to choose our own ambition. We chose to choose our own path. So therefore, we walked away from God. We chose to sin against God. And God, in His wrath, in His holiness, should judge us according to His holiness. The reason why we should be judged because we have failed that requirement. We have failed that perfect holy standard. We have failed that commission which God has given us to serve Him. And we should suffer eternity in hell for our inability or for our choice to walk away from God. God, however, because He loves us, He cares for us, He wants us to return back to Him, send His Son Jesus Christ to earth to die on the cross for our sins. Our sins is what separate us from God. God, however, removed that barrier and gave us Jesus to, as a means for us to be restored back to Him. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. While I was dying on the cross, He was paying for the penalty of our sins. While I was dying on the cross, He was giving His perfect righteousness to us. If we believe unto Him, we shall have that righteousness in us. 
Not only is Jesus restoring us back to the Father, he's also recommissioning us back to the purpose which we're created for, which is that we will work for him again. We will be that holy instrument unto the Lord again in who we are. Now, each one of us are different from one another. We saw this in our study in Matthew here in this portion, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. We're all different from one another. And that's beautiful because God has designed us differently. Now that we're restored back to God, we get to be different in who we are, but at the same time be used by God in our differences for His glory. So that is our purpose here on earth, to be used by God in our individual characteristics, in our individual character traits, in our individual abilities, capabilities, and wants and desires. And as God restores us back to Himself, we get to be used by God for His glory in who we are. That's the beauty of being a church. That's the beauty of being who we are under the Lord. And here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we're going to see this passage where God chooses men to serve him. And we're reading through this passage regarding the 12 disciples. And we don't have to be qualified for the job. Really, the reason why we chose, in this world actually, in this world, people choose those who are qualified. God actually chooses those who are unqualified and then qualifies them as they serve him. So today, if you and I are willing to jump in and just say, God, use me according to your glory. I don't know how I can serve you, but I'm going to just pour myself in who I am and ask you to use me. God will certainly use you and he'll give you the abundant life as you will have as you serve him. As you serve him, you'll feel a lot of peace and joy because this is how you are designed to live. So here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we're going to again look at the 12 disciples, who they are, and how their journey sometimes matches ours as well. So in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to go through the disciples again. We're arriving at the fifth disciple, Philip. Philip. And we're going to read about Philip. Philip, as we're going to find out, is the pragmatist. He is the pragmatist. So let's give a little context to Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 to 3. Let's read through these, this, this name, or these names again. In verse 2 it says this. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, James the son of Zebedee, John's brother, verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew. So Philip, as we're going to find out, is the next person we're going to approach. And Philip is a pragmatist. He's a detail-oriented person. Now, in order to understand Philip, let's pull back a little bit and try to understand the whole entire context of Matthew. Matthew, as we find out, is really not about the disciples. The disciples is a, we're taking a detour in the study of the disciples, but Matthew is about Jesus. Right? Matthew is about Jesus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom which he promises to bring. This kingdom is the realm of salvation. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. We're all sinners before God, but God, Jesus Christ, has come to fulfill all righteousness which we can't fulfill. And because he lived this life, this perfect life, if we believe unto him, that righteousness shall be ours. As we're going to find out later in the book of Matthew, he's going to die on the cross for our sins and give that perfect righteousness to us. But we must believe unto him in order to receive this righteousness, in order to be saved. So throughout this ministry that Jesus is partaking now in Galilee, which has been a year, a year and a half or so, he's been teaching all and recommending all and also inviting all to come to him and believe unto him as the Lord and Savior. He's been asking them to come. He's making invitations to individuals. We saw the invitation with Jairus. We saw an invitation with the woman with the bullet loss. We saw an invitation with the paralytic. We saw an invitation to individuals. As Jesus is making invitations to individuals to believe unto him, what we're finding out is that there's a shortage of manpower. That is why in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, we're seeing that Jesus is asking, who is going to go out? 
The harvest is plentiful, but the, but the workers are few. The laborers are few. So who is going to go out and harvest this plentiful harvest? Therefore, after Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, as Jesus asks this question, in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to find out that Jesus is going to provide the solution. He's going to call the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples are his first laborers, his first harvesters, the people who have come alongside of him and harvest with him in this wonderful harvest in the land of Galilee. Now, the first disciple to review is Peter. Peter, as we found out, is a zealous, is impetuous, visionary leader who is quick to speak, quick to act, quick to take the step of faith, quick to, quick to do everything. He lacks endurance, but he's a visionary leader that can communicate uh, his vision. He's quick to stand up for what is right. He's quick to repent. But he's the leader which Jesus had picked for the 12 disciples. We also saw Andrew. Andrew is his relational servant. He just wants to bring people to Jesus. And some of you might be Andrew. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know what? Just come to Jesus and Jesus will figure it out. That's Andrew. And then you also have James. James is fiery preacher. He's his judgment, well not judge, but he's not afraid to pronounce the judgment of God. He's not afraid to hold up signs and you are a sinner. You deserve God's judgment. He's not afraid to tell you that. He's fiery, he's aggressive, he's intense. Then you have John. John is the same as James, but he has learned to love. He's learned to balance love and truth. So you have this in the disciples. And now we're arriving at Philip. Philip is the fifth disciple. Now, as you read through all the disciples, I want you to understand this, this one thing. They're all different from one another. All very, very different. Very different in their personality. Very different in their character traits. Very different in their wants and desires. But God uses them all as they are stepping out in faith. That's the only common denominator between these, two, these, uh, these disciples we're going to study. The only common denominator, they said, is that they want God to use them. So they're stepping out in faith to say, you know what? I am who I am. I don't, I don't want to be anybody else. I can't be anybody else. I don't want to be anybody else. And certainly, I just want to step out being who I am and have you use me. And that's what Jesus does. He molds them and shapes them according to their character traits. They're mature, but they're, even the maturity looks different because they have different character traits. So that's the hope in you and I. Like We don't have to look at another person and say, you know what I want to be like? I have to be like him in order to serve God. God can use you the way that you are. So we arrive at Philip, and Philip is this pragmatic detail-oriented person. There are four passages that we're going to look at in Scripture that describe Philip. So if, if, uh, if Peter, by the way, if Peter is this one person that would jump in without figuring out all the details, Philip would be the opposite. Philip would hesitate to jump in until all the details are figured out. That's Philip. Maybe, maybe some of you more um, relate to Philip than you can relate to Peter. Like you have to figure out all the details before you can jump in and do something. That's Philip. And there are four passages regarding Philip that we're going to look at in Scripture. The first passage, as we're going to see, is found in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43 is when Philip first found Jesus. Actually, Jesus first found Philip. In that particular story in John chapter 1, Jesus had just ministered to Andrew, James, and John. And he made a trip to Galilee. And there, in, first, in John chapter 1, verse 43, it says that he went and found Philip and said, follow me. But then in John chapter, 1, verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip went and found, as we're going to find out, Philip went and found Nathanael and said, we have found the Messiah. So we come into a certain contradiction. It's like, did Jesus find Philip or did Philip find Jesus? Who found who? Who found who? Well, the answer is both. They both found each other. 
But from Philip's pragmatic, detail-oriented perspective, he's very much into, or he very much it's very much easier, or it's easier for him to understand what he does in his human perspective. He understands what he does. He's pragmatic. So even though Jesus found him, we know that it's Jesus who found him because each one of us who are here is because Jesus found us. He opened our hearts. He opened our hearts. And opened our, uh, the Spirit of God came into our heart and then opened our spiritual eyes to see Jesus. He's the one who sought after us first. But then we were seeking after Jesus as a result of him seeking after us. There's a human responsibility that comes as a result of, of believing in God. We have to believe in God ourselves in order to be saved. And from Philip's perspective, it's very much easier for him to understand that part of salvation. Like what he does to get saved. So he comes to Nathanael and says, I have found Jesus, the Messiah, the one who we have been searching after, the one Moses and the law talked about, the son of Joseph, that's him. So that's Philip. He will explain it to you from an earthly human perspective, the details, everything that's needed for you to understand what happened. That's Philip. Another situation that we're going to find about Philip is in the story of the feeding of 5,000. By the way, all these stories are going to turn to Jesus teaching Philip that he can do more than Philip imagined. It's hard for Philip to understand the supernatural. Okay, Philip is pragmatic. It's hard for Philip to understand supernatural events of God. But God, Jesus Christ, is going to teach Philip throughout all Philip's three years that he's been with Jesus how God is supernatural. So we're going to see this in the feeding of the 5,000. If you turn to John chapter 6, verse 4 through 7, you can kind of get that picture. But I'll explain the story to you. In that particular story, and we have studied this last week, in that particular story, Jesus just preached to the 5,000. As he preached to the 5,000, and the day is getting late, he asked one specific disciple what to do. That's Philip. And he asked Philip this, where are we going to find bread so that all these people can eat. Where? Now you must find it interesting as I would, why is he asking Philip? Why ask Philip this question? See, the reason I believe that he asked Philip this question is because Philip is administrator of the group. His giftedness had led him to become the group administrator. He is the logistic manager. He's the one who takes care of the food. He's probably the one who goes out and buys the food and brings it back for Jesus and the disciples. That's his job. That's his giftedness. He's good at that. But then he needs to learn something. Being pragmatic as he is, he's going to learn that God is supernatural. God can work beyond what Philip can do. So Jesus asked Philip this question. What are we going to do to find food for all these people to eat? There's 5,000 men there. It's just men. So if you count the women there, there's another 5,000 count the kids there. There could be 20,000 people there. A lot of people that needs food. And Philip is presented with this question. Now the interesting part about this passage is that Jesus knew what he was going to do. In John chapter 6, verse 6, it says this. Jesus said this to Philip, not that he needed the answer, but Jesus knew that he was what he was going to do. Jesus said this in order to test Philip, in order to test him, in order to teach him something. Now Jesus already knows what he's going to do. Philip doesn't know, but Jesus knew. What's the lesson? Well, imagine with me. Jesus is teaching on his hillside of Galilee, and day is getting late. And Philip, being as pragmatic as, as, as a logistic in mind as he is, he's probably thinking in his mind, Jesus, what are you doing preaching so late? Right? What are you doing preaching so late? These people have nowhere to go after dark. I mean, they literally cannot go back home and find food for themselves. We have to feed them. 
So as day is getting late, you could kind of see in Philip's face, it's getting like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I can't believe Jesus is doing this again, dragging it on. Don't you know? Don't, doesn't he know that we have to prepare all these things? It's logistically minded. And you can actually see in Jesus, you can actually see in Philip's face. So Jesus probably saw it and just want to break the ice. Philip, I know what you're thinking. I mean, let me just make it easy for you. Really tell me what you think. Tell me what you're thinking. Philip, where are we going to find food for 5,000 people or 20,000 people to eat? Where? Now, Philip responded, I was going to see in John chapter 6, verse 7. He's been very polite because he didn't want to get mad at Jesus. After all, Jesus is the master. said to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for these people to eat. 200 denarii. The guy already has a number. I mean, he already thought, he already thought this through. I mean, Jesus asked him a question. He already got the logistics all figured out. And he says, I can't do it. I mean, 200 denarii, that could be the number that the disciples have saved up. Or it could be the number that he imagined could be gathered from the crowd. Whoever that number is, it's a legitimate number. But he says to Jesus, 200 denarii is pretty much all that we're going to get. And that's not going to cut it. It's not going to do whatever that you think that you're, you're commanding us that we should do. So we can't do it. Practically, pragmatically, logistically, we look at all the details, it simply cannot happen. When you look at the earthly details, that is. And then Jesus had to show Philip that I can do more than what you could imagine. I can do what more than earthly details said you cannot do. So he brought over the five loaves and the two fish and said, look, let me just spread this. And there you go. 5,000 people got fed. Philip had to learn that God works in the supernatural. He's not just all about what is earthly details. He's not all about what happens on this earth and the details and logistics of this earth, but he's actually working beyond what we can think or imagine. Philip had to learn this. Another lesson that Philip had to learn is in John chapter 12, verse 20 to 22. In this particular passage, some Greeks want to see Jesus. Now, Greeks are Gentiles. If you know the relationship between Gentiles and the Jews, Gentiles and Jews simply don't intermingle. That is not what they do. In the books, according to the bylaws, the Gentiles cannot intermingle with the Jews. So they came and found Philip, thinking that, you know what, Philip is a Greek name. Maybe Philip will bring us to Jesus. Philip is a Jew. He knew that, hey, Jews and Gentiles don't intermingle, so I can't really bring this person to Jesus. But I had a question. So he hesitated in bringing these people to Jesus. Didn't think that it's in the books. He forgot the big picture again, the big spiritual picture, that God is God of all nations. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, it says, Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Gentiles will have to come to Jesus as well. Anybody who wants to see Jesus should be able to see Jesus. That's the big picture. But Philip got stuck in the details again. Got stuck in there. And so until Andrew comes along and talks to Philip, Philip and Andrew actually brought the Gentiles to see Jesus. Another story of Philip. Again, he got stuck in the details. It's found in John chapter 14, where at the end of the Jesus' ministry, where Jesus is having last supper with his disciples, he's teaching the disciples that he's going to go. He's going to have to leave them. They're going to be alone, but then he will come back again and bring them unto himself. He says to them in John chapter 14, verse 6, and teaching them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. If you know me, you have known my Father as well. He's declaring deity. He's saying that I am God. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now Philip asks this question. 
Jesus, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. This is in John chapter 14. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You see, for Philip, he knew exactly why Jesus is leaving. If Jesus is talking about dying and being captured, being arrested by the chief priest, all of this, hap- all of this is happening because Jesus is declaring to be God. That is why Jesus is suffering. That is why Jesus is going through the, the process of being arrested. If Jesus says he's going to be arrested, that's the reason why. So Philip is that pragmatic mindset saying, you know what? Just show us the Father. Just show us God. Show us the Father and the Jews will shut up. Pragmatic. Just do that. And you don't have to go through this process of dying, all this thing. Like, Just show us the Father. And Jesus had to rebuke Philip and say, in John chapter 14, verse 9, Philip, have I been with you so long you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Like, you don't have the spiritual eyes. The reason why the Jews are rejecting me is not because they're rejecting me only. They're also rejecting the Father. They don't have God in their heart. If they have the Father in their heart, they will also have accepted me. So why do you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So stop being so stuck on the details and focus on the big spiritual picture. The big spiritual picture is that you will believe unto me as I am in him and he is in me. I am the Father, Father is in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you're not stuck in the details, you'll see the bigger picture. And oftentimes, I think, so pull back a little bit. Philip is one who's stuck in the details, but oftentimes missed the big picture. Makes who God is and the supernatural characteristic of God. So oftentimes we could be like that too. We could be stuck in the details as well. I mean, look around, this whole setup here in our church and here in the, uh, be able to worship outside requires a lot of details. If you didn't know this, I can tell you all the details. There's a camera right there. It's connected to a cord that goes all the way into the sanctuary. That's connected to a computer in the back of the sanctuary that's running four different programs that are able to mix a sound that's coming from a lapel as well as from the music from the stage, the worship songs, and the lyrics is being put out from the computer so that people at home can worship alongside with us who are outside. That takes a lot of details to work all out. If you, if you tell me that this is what we're going to have to do in order to have worship outside, we'll say, in the beginning, say, March, all these things start happening. I would say, there's no way we could do this. There's no way we could do this. On top of this, there is the, the ordinances from the health department saying you have to keep socially distant. If you're not family with one another, you have to... Uh, have hand sanitizers, thermometers, and checking the temperatures, masks, and different things. So many things that we have to do. If we have five people, we have five staff over here that's managing this, there's no way we could do this. Might as well not have service. Might as well just keep it... It may as not not mean at all. Come back as a church in 2022 whenever this thing's going to be over. I hope it's not going to take that long. But God told us something. God said, you know what? The church doesn't stop. Church should never stop. In fact, Jesus said that I've come. If you, when does church ever stop? When church is going to stop? Until I come again. Right? Doesn't say that you're going to have a virus. You're going to have pandemic. Doesn't have you have a whatever things, uh, war, whatever. Then you have the church cannot meet. No church continues to meet throughout every single disaster that's in the nation, disaster in human history. Church have to continue to meet. So if you think about this in this perspective, then we have to believe that God is a supernatural God. Everything we believe about God is supernatural. 
We believe that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for your sins. That's supernatural. You believe that God's going to rescue us from your sin and restore us back to himself, that you're going to live forever with him? That's supernatural. You're going to believe that, 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 you, 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 that, that there is eternal life forever? That's supernatural. And because you believe in that, now you're going to live here on earth to serve him and to, to give him glory and to offer your heart and your soul and your, your, your life to him? It's all motivated by the supernatural. You have to believe in the supernatural in order for you to serve the Lord. And that if you believe God's a supernatural God, then you would say, you know what? I have to believe in this big vision. I have to believe in this big vision and sometimes let go of the details and say, you know what? God's going to have to provide through the details. He's going to have to provide. So you're going to be like Andrew and say, you know what? I'm going to come with this five loaves and two fish and somehow Jesus is going to do it with the rest. That's what Jesus is going to do. And so this is exactly what we did. Like we believe that God called us to be a church, virus or not. We have to be able to shepherd God's people. We have to be able to fellowship with one another. We have to be able to provide some kind of way so that we can evangelize to the community. We have to do this as a church, whether there's a deadly virus out there or not. He never told us to stop. Do this until I come, he says. That's what he says. So the first Sunday we walked out here and we said, you know what, what are you going to do? We set up a laptop. This Dakota's laptop. He said, you know what? Let's just think about the first step. We have to provide some kind of shepherding way, a shepherding method, a method to shepherd God's people, and we have to have a service, and we have to keep people safe. So therefore, let's put this online. We don't know how to do this. We're not technologically advanced at all as a church. So what we had is a laptop with a little webcam on a laptop on top of a music stand, on top of some books, on top of the communion table. Literally, the communion, because that's right there. In the middle of the aisle, pointing at me and a worship leader. We could barely make out our face because it's so blurry. But God did it. That's our first service. The chats and everything is like happening on that as people were chatting with each other, having some kind of fellowship online. We had to do it. And then, at church, and then we began to think, you know what? If the church opens up, we have to be able to, be able to accommodate people coming back in and, and follow the health ordinances and different things that we have to do. So we began to think through these things and say, and think, God, these details must happen. And it did. The church opened at first indoors. We had to clean. We had to do all these things. And we, we, we did it you know, in such a way that's available, that, that we can do here as a staff. And then when the church started meeting outside, we changed. We said, you know what? We still have to do it. We have to step into what God calls us to do and let God figure out the details, and God does. We improved over time. I mean, this setup is not done in day one. It really isn't. But God provided us throughout the time, throughout the way, throughout the weeks, and showed us, you know what, if you're just willing to step out in faith, I will give you the rest. That's how our journey began. began. So this is what it means to look at the big picture. Now, if you're Philip and sometimes you get pragmatic and get stuck in the details, you say, you know what, we can't do it. There's a saving grace for you. Of course, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also can trust in your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that's Philip's saving grace. You know why? Because Philip had a good friend. His name is Nathaniel or Bartholomew, who is a big picture person. He's a simplistic big picture person, which we're going to see here in this passage, also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. So if Philip is a detail-oriented person, Nathaniel would be the big picture, simplistic, broad thinker. Nathaniel also Bartholomew here, we see in verse 2 and verse 3. So let's read here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 to 3 again and get acquainted with the names. The names of the 12 apostles are these. 
For Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew. Now Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Nathaniel is Bartholomew. We see Nathaniel here in John chapter 1. If you're still there, just put your finger right there in that encounter between Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is Nathaniel's last name. Bar means son of Tholomew. He's the son of Tholomew. So Nathaniel Bartholomew is his whole name. Now, Nathaniel Bartholomew, I was going to find out, is a person who is big picture thinker. Now, big picture thinker is not necessarily uh, all, all good. There's some weaknesses <laughs> and there's some advantages of being a big picture thinker. If you're a big picture thinker, sometimes you make generalization where you shouldn't be making generalizations. You should be nuanced in your thinking. Sometimes big picture thinkers don't have that. They just think, everything's too, they just think everything is general, but they should be more nuanced in their thinking. We're going to see this in John chapter 1, if you're there, in verse 46 to 49. John chapter 1, verse 46 to 49, picked up again where Philip left off, where he left off with Philip. Philip had just gone to Nathanael and said to Nathanael, who is Bartholomew, we have found the Messiah, Jesus, son of Joseph, he's from Nazareth. And what did Nathanael say? Nathanael being a big picture thinker, broad thinker, he makes generalizations. He says this, what good can come out of Nazareth? Right? His prejudice. That's what prejudice is. It's making generalizations where you shouldn't be making generalizations. That's what prejudice is. So this man is easy to, he, he quickly makes a prejudicial statement. What good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is all the way in the northern part of Israel. It's right before you hit the Gentile territory. No prophets or whatever, you know, no, no, uh, uh, at least in his days, nobody of high theological prowess has ever come out of Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? He's not willing to give Jesus a chance. He's prejudiced. Now, Philip makes a good friend to Nathaniel. He says, hey, look at this guy. Look at the details. I know what you're saying. Like, Nazareth is kind of like the part of town you don't want to go to. But this man's different. This man's different. Why don't you come and see? Come and see. So he got Nathaniel looking to it further. Now, Nathaniel would never, ever have come to Jesus unless with the help of Philip. Philip looking to it, say, hey, I look in the details, and I think your generalization is a little bit wrong. Actually, it's quite a bit wrong. So come and take a look at this man who I found. So Nathaniel came and gave Jesus a chance. And Jesus saw Nathaniel in that particular chapter, in John chapter 1, um, in verse 45, or in verse 46. Actually, verse 47. It says this. Jesus said to him, to Nathaniel, that is, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael responded to Jesus saying, How do you know me? How do you know me? Now I'll give you a little background to what this really means. Now Jesus is complimenting Nathanael saying, You are Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now remember, Nathanael is very simplistic minded. He, he is a broad thinker. He's not manipulative in his personality. Now, in the days of Jesus, a lot of people who are very, very manipulative. You have to be in order to be respected. As a Jew, as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, as a scribe, we saw this in Matthew chapter 5. These people were lying to each other. They were pretending to be religious. They were fasting, they were praying, they were giving, all for show, to be seen by people. Jesus reprimanded them in Matthew chapter 5, saying, you're only doing as a hypocrite. Now, if you're a hypocrite, then you're very manipulative, right? You're very manipulative as a hypocrite, but Nathaniel had nothing to do with that. 
So, you know, his personality just lends him to be a very pure-hearted worshiper of God. He just wanted God. He just wanted to love the Lord. He's just very simplistic-minded. He's not going to go out there and manipulate people and make people think of him something that he is not. So he is a pure-hearted Israelite. So Jesus says, a true Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. You're not like any of the Pharisees and the scribes who are lying to people in a religiosity. You're a pure-hearted Jew. You have a true relationship with God. You love the Lord. And you knew that's all you needed to have. And Nathaniel responded to Jesus, how do you know me? Like he, he said, that's, yeah, that's who I am, but how do you know me? And Jesus said to Nathaniel, interestingly, if you read that chapter, it says, while you were sitting at the fig tree, before Philip called you, I saw you. Now, I want to explain this a little bit because you might be confused. What does that really mean? Like Jesus saw Nathaniel under the fig tree before Philip called and I saw you? I mean, what's the significance of this? Well, it turns out that fig tree is a place of prayer. Fig tree, fig tree is a place of meditation and prayer. These fig trees that grow up to be 15 feet tall. Fig tree, we have one in the back of the church. I mean, it's a monster. We cut it down, it comes back up again, literally. Like, you can't stop things, these things from growing. They're just growing, growing, growing. Now, in the land of Israel, it's kind of like the land here today in, in, in Los Angeles. It gets hot. So people would escape the hustle and the bustle of the house because sit under fig tree. Fig tree is a time of rest, time of meditation, and time of prayer. So what we know is that Nathaniel likely was praying under that fig tree. He was praying, and the content of his prayer had been matching what Jesus had been telling him. He's been praying, God, like I'm not like those, I'm, I'm, I have you in my heart. I, I'm a pure-hearted Jew. Like I just want you. I just want to love you. And when Jesus said a Jew indeed, or true Israelite indeed, is affirming Nathaniel exactly what Nathaniel had prayed right before Jesus had met him. Before you are brought to me, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you and I heard your prayers. Jesus is omniscient. We know this, and through the gospel account, Jesus could hear people's thoughts. He knows what's in people's minds. Jesus knew what Nathaniel was praying because he is God. Whatever Nathaniel was praying to God actually went to Jesus. Jesus heard it all. And because Jesus was able to affirm what Nathaniel was thinking, Nathaniel said to Jesus in, Matthew, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 49, says this, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I mean, literally, he just changed he shifted from a man who does not believe that anything good can come out of Nazareth to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That quickly. I mean, he's very, very quick to believe. Simplistic-minded. He's broad-pictured. He just needs to see a miracle from Jesus. And he says, you know what, Jesus, you are who you are. I believe you. And Jesus said to Nathaniel this in John chapter 1, verse 50. He said this, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Like I show you this little miracle and you believe. And you might think that this is all that you need to believe about me. But there's yet more for you to learn. There's yet more for you to know. There's more details about me that you must learn. You will see throughout the next three years as you follow me how I am the ladder, how I am the Jacob's ladder, how I am the connection between man and God, you will learn more about me. I will have much to teach you. So Nathaniel, even though he got the big picture, he hung on to the big picture, he still needed to learn the details about God. Sometimes we could be like that as well. We know the big picture. We think that this is all we needed to know. 
Like if I just love Jesus, why do I need to learn doctrine? If I just love Jesus, love people, why do I need to learn theology? Some of you might think that way. I used to think that way too as well. See, before I went to seminary, I was already enjoying ministry. I was ministering, I was teaching, I was leading worship, teaching Bible studies. I was already seeing people grow because of the ministry which I do. And God was, God was using me. And then I went to seminary and they started putting me in classes. Greek, Hebrew, historical theology, debates between dead people on certain aspects of theology, sovereignty of God, man's responsibility. I was like, you know what, you guys make it too complicated. Why? <laughs> said, Amen. Why are you making it so complicated? Like, you just love Jesus. It's all done. Teach people to follow him. Why am I learning this? So I dozed off in class. I was working like 40 hours a week. I was going to seminary for six years, you know, part-time. I was so tired. I mean, I had to go back to my notes to find out what exactly I learned because I couldn't, like, literally, I was falling asleep a lot of times. But then seven years of pastoral ministry taught me that you need to know the details. You do. The cults, which are around the Scientology, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, they all twist the details. That's what they do. The debates between dead people on whether Jesus is God or Jesus is not God, whether he's born from, a, born from a virgin or not, it's all been talked about since the first century. You have to know exactly what was discussed. You will know that all the heresies here in our country today or here in our time today is all rehashed of what happened in the first century. It's just really what that is. So if you know these things, then you know how to correct them or how to call them out on the false theology which they teach. And sometimes when sheep is caught in the false theology, you need to know the details in order to correct the sheep. And that's exactly why details are so important. Sometimes the battles are fought at the details. The devil is in the details. He is. You need to know them. You need to know the nuanced aspects of the Bible, the, the theology, the doctrine, in order to be a profitable minister of God. And that's what Nathaniel needed to learn. Nathaniel needed to learn from Philip. Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, he is the one. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, give him all the details. Nathaniel needs to learn, you know what? Even though I understand the broad theology, I need to go in deep and understand the details of who God is. You see, God is both detail-oriented and big picture-minded. He's both. He's both. If you look at creation, you can see this. Take a microscope, Take some flowers or a butterfly, you put it under the microscope, you can see so much that you cannot see with your eye. You take an electron microscope, which can go like 5,000 times more than a regular microscope, you see even more details. I mean, you can keep seeing details after details until you see the atoms. Even that you can't see anymore. You have to go into quantum mechanics. But then there's still more details there. He's very detail-oriented, and these details are the building blocks of the universe. But the universe is so elegant. You and I are so elegant. As you're sitting there, as I'm preaching to you, I'm not thinking about, like, you know what? I need to tell my heart to beat. Right? I'm not telling, hey, it's stomach. You need to digest the food that you just ate. I mean, all these things are happening because God just made it happen. All I'm thinking about is focusing on talking to you. But thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of neurons are firing at the same time in your brain and my brain right now. You don't tell them to fire. They just are. So God is detail-oriented and his broad picture of mind as well. He's simplistically elegant. At the same time, the details are important. The building blocks of you and I. In the same way the church is as well. See, within the church, there are people who are oriented in a such a way that they're detail-oriented. 
but they're people who are oriented in a broad mind setting. The church needs both. God has died for both kinds of people. He gave his life to both. He died on the cross, paid for the penalty of our sins, your sin and my sin, everybody who is here who are so different from one another so that we can work together as a church and proliferate God's kingdom here on earth. So today, if you're Philip, to know that there is use for you here on earth. You might be detail-oriented, but God can use you. God can use you. See, an immature Philip might be so detail-oriented, so pragmatic that he or she just stuck. You're just stuck in who you are. Overly pessimistic. So detail-oriented that you just, you just don't think everything is possible. But a mature Philip is extremely valuable to the church. A mature Philip is going to come alongside the vision and say, here, here's the resources that you're going to have to need. Here are, the, here are the, the, the consequences of this action. Here are the resources. Here's what you're going to face. So therefore, we can make an informed step of faith. You see, God doesn't want us to step into blind faith and be surprised. Oh, why is this happening? Right? You want to be Philip. You want to know what will happen if you take the step of faith. You want to be informed in what your step of faith actually involves, and Philip will actually tell you that. So Philip is extremely valuable to the church. Nathaniel is also valuable to the church as well because Nathaniel is simplistically minded. So when you're stuck on a small picture, you're stuck on the details, Nathaniel will come to you and say, hey, just chill. Chill a little bit. God will take care of it. Why are you so worried? Why are you so concerned? God still sits on the throne, right? Go to sleep. Wake up tomorrow, right? Things might be different. You might be able to think, from, think about it from a different angle. You don't have to go through all these things. Maybe from a different angle, you can attack it. It'd be even better. Don't worry. God's in control. Maybe you wait a week and the problems will solve itself. Sometimes it does. That's what Nathaniel does. And some of you are Nathaniel nodding your head. You know what? That's me. Like, just don't worry. God will take care of it. That's extremely valuable to the church as well because we don't want to be stressed about things that God's going to take care of anyways. He's going to take care of it. So Nathaniel brings that to mind. So with the church full of Nathaniel and Philip, what we're going to find is that there are going to be pushbacks. Sometimes Nathaniel doesn't like Philip. Sometimes Philip doesn't like Nathaniel, right? Am I right? Like, you know what? They're just so detail-oriented. Just stop telling me all that. As someone come to my office and say, you know what? You don't need these books. Like, you know, like, why are you doing all these, why are you reading all these books? I mean, he's, he loves the Lord, so this is going to be pushback. I said, you know what? You need, you know, I, I saw pushback a little bit. It's like, you need to know these things. But then sometimes Philip doesn't like Nathaniel either. It's like, man, like, you're just, you're just, um, uh, uh, you're not thinking through all the details. You're not, you're, you're not, you're not uh, considering all the consequences. You're bothered by it. And Nathaniel is bothered with Philip because Philip is bringing all these details and he just want to hear it. But within the church of God, there is a beauty of us working together. The beauty is that once we push back on each other and we love, still love each other, we actually can compensate for one another's weakness and work off each other's strength. See, only in the church we can find this. In the world, we're just going to brush off each other. But within the church, we love one another. And when unbelievers come and see, you know, how can you, with such a different personality, all work together, we can say it's only because of Jesus. He died for us. He sacrificed himself for us. So therefore, we're pouring all that we are to him, sacrificing even our own desire sometimes so that we can see, kingdom of God, see the kingdom of God move forward. So we see this in the church. As we live this life as a church, other people will see Jesus in us. And as they hear the gospel message, many of them, I pray, will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we see this in 
in this portion of scripture. God uses Philip, who is detail-oriented minded, and God uses Philip, uh, uh, Nathaniel, who is broad thinking minded. And each of these men, as we're going to find out in conclusion, also give their lives to serve the Lord. They did. Now, there are other, there are many, many um, stories revolving how Philip and Nathaniel actually died for the Lord. But one convincing story is this. Philip and Nathaniel working together. As they're working together, they were working together in the region of Greece. In the region of Greece, Philip has shared the gospel with the wife of a proconsul of the city called Heropolis. And the wife got saved, but the proconsul got mad, really angry at Philip and Nathaniel. So what he did is he crucified both of them on the cross. And as Philip and Nathaniel would die on the cross, Philip was sharing the gospel to everyone who passes by. As you know, die on the cross is a very open event. And people got saved. The crowd was convinced of the gospel, so they began to release Philip and Nathaniel from the cross. They got Bartholomew down, and as well, they're going to get Philip down. Philip said to them, no, don't do it. He probably was dying, and he died there on the cross. And history tells us that, or tradition tells us that, as Bartholomew kept moving on, he went to Armenia. Armenia, by the way, is the country where claims Bartholomew as a patron saint. So this is a credible story. He went to Armenia, and then that, in that area, he preached the gospel to King Armenia. And that king heard the gospel which Bartholomew preached. As a result, he believed the gospel. When he believed the gospel, the brother of the king got mad, upset, and had Bartholomew executed. The way that he died was that he was filleted and beheaded. And that's how Bartholomew died. See, each of these men gave their life to the Lord. They worked together, and yet they gave their life to the Lord. As different as they are, they recognize that God's kingdom is infinitely more important. So today, if we work together as we are and give our lives to the Lord, I know that God will work through each one of us for His glory. And certainly, we will experience adventure together as a church, bring the gospel to the city of Hollywood. And God will tremendously use us to, to show Himself in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that we get to see Philip and Bartholomew, Lord, the men who are so different from one another, the men who, are, who give their life to you, Lord. And we thank you, God, that you use those who are detail-oriented as well as using those who are broad-minded thinkers. We thank you, God, that in the church we find both. So, Lord, may we offer ourselves up to you to be used by you. Lord, may you glorify yourself through us. We thank you, Lord, the way that which you have already used us. I pray that as a church we can shine light to the community around us here in Hollywood. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.